All right, well, we finished our journey together through the book of Philippians. We finished that last week. And then we'll start the next book in the New Testament called Colossians. We're going to start that at the end of the month. And between now and then, we're going to look at a couple different things. And you're also going to have some guest uh, preachers come in next week. Our new uh, director of youth ministries, Donnie, is going to be preaching for us. And after that, some guy named Harry Long is going to be preaching for, uh, for us. Um, and then at the end of the month, we will be starting in the book of Colossians. So for today, we're going to be in, in, in a psalm, in the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms is the hymnal of the Old Testament. And so if you want to turn there in your smartphone, if you want to look on page 10 in your order of worship, you can also use that pew, or not pew, sorry, that chair Bible there in front of you. And today's passage is found on page 420 in that uh, Bible. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible with you at home, please do take that Bible there with you as our gift. We'd love for you uh, to have that. So the Psalms are songs. The, the book of Psalms is the Old Testament hymnal of these inspired songs. And so one of the things about them is their poetry. They use a lot of different literary devices. They use a lot of different linguistic techniques that uh, include metaphor and other things. So when you're reading a historical book, if it says the chariot was blue, well, the chariot's just blue. You're not, to, you're not supposed to try to find a deeper meaning there, right? But in the book of Psalms, oftentimes these things are metaphors or trying to get us to be, get a, a deeper sense of what's going on through this language that just vibrates with concentrated meaning. So as we work through this, keep that in mind, this is poetry. This is concentrated meaning in this inspired text we're going to look at today. So with that introduction, let's all look together now at Psalm number 8. Again, it's found on page 10 in your order of worship, page 420 in the chair Bible there. <clears throat> o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have given us this inspired song that we might know You and know Your truth and be changed by Your truth. And so we pray, Father, that as we encounter You and see Your majesty today, that You would once again show us the majesty of Jesus and that we would receive that deep, deep in our hearts. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a couple things to kind of as we get into this psalm today, we kind of in the in the various copy and pastes that happened to get it to get the, the text into the bulletin, there was a little bit of a mix up. Those first couple words there, O Lord, our Lord, the first Lord there typically in an English translation, if you have your Bible open, you can see this, is capital, is all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and then the next one is normal right? Lord. So it's actually two different Hebrew words there. One of them is kind of like a name and the other one's like
like a title. So we have this kind of intimacy and seriousness there. It's as if I was talking to, like, say, my oldest daughter, and I said, Shaylee, you're my daughter. And then whatever else I said is this mixture of, this is a very serious and yet intimate conversation. You get that? And that's how it starts out here. So it's a name and then a title, two different Hebrew words. And then also, if you notice, look at verse 1, and then look down at verse 9, and they're the exact same thing. They repeat. And they do this on purpose. And here's why they do this, just to get you to understand. So I'm a sandwich guy. You put something between two pieces of bread, and, and you have my attention. And, and you notice what I said. I didn't say sandwich. I said sandwich, S-A-M-M-I-C-H, right? That's the good stuff right there. And I'm telling you this because there's this ancient literary device that the eggheads who are much more fancy than I am call uh, an inclusio. I need the sock puppet version. It's a sandwich, okay? You got this thing here and this thing here are the exact same, like two pieces of bread, and what's in between is really important. And that's what this psalm does. It brackets this, say, hey, right here in the middle, this is really important. And David wraps it up this way. This is a psalm of David. He wraps it up this way because he wants to excite us about the majesty of God, and then he wants to incite us to praise and worship of that majesty of God. It leads us into praise. And the second thing we see about this sandwich of a psalm, if you look closely, you're going to see the word you or your all over the place. I mean, I, w- I went through and highlighted it at the beginning of the week to look at this, and it was like all highlighted. It was, there was more stuff not highlighted almost. So this is a God word psalm. It's all about you, God. So this is this sandwich that he really wants us to see the majesty of this God that we get to deal with. So that gets us to our theme for today, where we're going to kind of land in this psalm, and that's this. The theme is this. God's splendor empowers the weak, causing them to worship and wonder. So let's jump in this together. First thing we see is we see an infant's awe. So David's out walking around the Powhatan, looking at the country night sky out there. Maybe he's even out in Amelia with Marty, and he just sees this glorious stars because there's no city lights to, and light pollution to, to hide them. You can just see things you can't see in the city, and it's amazing, and it's glorious, and he proclaims God's majesty, and that's easy. We can all do that. But then he messes with us in verse 2. And he walks down the hall to the nursery, and he hears the screaming, caterwauling babies. By the way, those of you who serve in the nursery, we love y'all. Hey, thank you. Uh, We couldn't do Sunday morning without you. And if you're looking for a way to serve on Sunday morning, the nursery is always looking for help. So anyway, so David walks down to the nursery. He sees the babies, and he says, that's God's strength and power, too. From the weakest part of creation, an infant comes strength. He has made infants a fortress against, what does it say? Foes, enemies, an avenger. Those hostile to God, those who make themselves God's adversaries, those who see themselves as an avenger against God. In other words, God has done me so wrong, I'm justified to take action against him. Those kind of people David says, they come in all their anger, in all their strength, and God opposes them with a baby. And they're defeated. This ancient, ancient song here, I love this. We get this whiff of God's contrary 
mercy. His contrary mercy. What I mean by that is God likes to work through the weak and weak things to defeat the strong and strong things. Maybe David is reminiscing about a young guy with five stones and a slingshot going up against Goliath. Or maybe he's just looking at all of God's history, what he's done. But he sees God works backwards. It's contrary. And then we who have the New Testament, we after Christ who have more understanding than David did, we get to see that God works with a different power. Thinking about this psalm, the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He says this, he says, But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, everybody looks up to the heavens and sees the stars and proclaims God's glory and strength. But God shows his power in weakness. Our weaknesses and failures, in other words, are what bring God to our life so he can show his strength, so he can display his power. God is repelled by all self-righteousness, but we can see from Scripture he is attracted to weakness. He establishes his strength in screaming babies. This is not a God you try to impress This is the God you look at and you gratefully say, Oh Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because God's splendor empowers the weak, causing them to worship and wonder. The next thing we see as we walk through this psalm is we see an awful question. Look at me at verses 3 and 4. David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him? What is humankind that you're mindful of us? Such a question is filled with wonder. It's filled with awe. Surely God has more important things to think about than little old me, little old us. This is baffled wonder and perplexed joy. Here's how a friend of mine and a mentor, really, a former teacher named Ralph Davis, here's how he puts it looking at this psalm. He says this. He says, when he says, what is man? He's not asking a question, but making an an exclamation. He is really saying, what a God. He's not posing a mental teaser. He is engaging in breathless praise. See, our doctrine of creation leads us to praise. The God who made the world, the God who invented photosynthesis, the God who thought up the water cycle, The God who placed the stars right where he wanted them in the night sky. That God is mindful of humanity. He remembers humankind. He recalls people. You know, throughout the Old Testament, this word here for mindful is used of God being remembering his people, especially when they're in difficult situations and they need him desperately. Joseph, thrown into slavery and sold by his own brothers, hopeless, helpless. And what does the text tell us? God remembers him. 
Later on, his people are in Egypt in slavery and hardship for over a generation. And what does the text say? God remembers his covenant with them. Throughout the historical books, numerous women are barren and can't have children. In that culture, they have no value. They're worthless human debris. And the text says God looks down and he remembers them and gives them children. And you and I, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and the unrighteousness of our flesh, when we were enslaved and suffering under sin and death, impossible for us to obey our way out under the law, God remembers. Standing firmly in this psalm, reminding the church in Galatia about the gospel, the Apostle Paul looks at this psalm and he says this in Galatians 4, 4 through 6. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, he might as well say when God remembered, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God was mindful of us. And so he sent Jesus to save us because God's splendor empowers the weak, causing them to worship and wonder. And then next, David takes us to a cause lost. He follows his question with his own reminder. Look with me at verse 5. He says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God has taken something weak and insignificant, humans, people, us, and he's put glory and honor into us. We are image bearers. We spend so much time trying to understand what does it mean to be made in God's image, but any ancient person reading the books of Moses for the first time would have immediately known in a way they were like, what does this mean? Okay, an image was a statue. That's it. It's a statue. They recognized that the gods were spiritual and you needed something tangible that you could touch and feel and, and, and pray to and complain to. And so they would make a statue of the God. They knew this wasn't the God. The God was there somewhere, but this is what we pray to. That's what it means to be in God's image. The ancient Israelites wandering in the desert. You can go through and read the text. It's right there. See for yourself. When the golden calf incident, they didn't think they were making somebody new. They're like, the God who saved us, we want to see him and touch him and feel him. And so Moses is away and we're scared. Let's make a golden calf and we'll call this the Lord who saved us. That's what it means to be an image bearer. God says, no, don't do that. You are my image. What does it mean to be human? It means to be God's image. We're full of glory. We're full of honor. We are the ones who carry that. That's why the second commandment says, don't make any graven images because y'all are my image. When my first daughter was very young, um, I was much more strict on these things in our household, and I remember she was probably like five, six-ish, and we went to visit my parents, who to this day, uh, love you mom and dad, they're probably watching right now, um, they still think this whole Presbyterian thing is a phase, because I grew up Southern Baptist, and we went there at Christmas time, and they had the nice nativity scene, and my little daughter, I mean, we're talking like this old, however old that is, right, is like, she sees this, and she's like, oh, Grandma! That's a graven image pointing to the baby Jesus. I know, I know, right? So it's like theologically, technically correct, but okay, let's, see, let's learn some people's schools here. She, and my mom just looks at me and like, are you serious? And I just went, it's a Presbyterian thing. You wouldn't understand. So 
But we're supposed to be the image. We don't make images like that because it's us. And God says there's glory and there's honor in that image. You see, right here is the basis for human rights. Right here is the basis for the belief of the dignity of the individual. Right here is the transcendental freight that says racism is a heinous sin against a holy God who made all kinds of people his image. It's right there. Secular modern humanism did not invent those concepts. In fact, thinkers from hundreds of years ago, Friedrich Nietzsche to Five years ago, Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, secular thinkers look at those things and say, our culture steals from Christianity and we need a better foundation if we're going to have a society that's, that, that is truly free of religion. But they have no positive solutions. They say, let's just keep stealing from Christianity because it, it's better. And it's all right here. We are given glory and honor because we're the image of God. How majestic is this God? And in verse 6, it gets even better. What does he tell us in verse 6? That humans are exalted to rule over all creation. That's what it means to be given dominion. We're exalted to rule over all creation. David is looking at Genesis 1 here, what's called the creation mandate. And he's kind of interpreting it and quoting it here. So he bring us all together. Not only do we have this like, you know, cosmic middle child syndrome as humanity, you know, we're under the angels, we're over the animals, we're kind of like this angsty middle kids, but we also have this mandate that we get to rule. And we have this pit in our stomach when we realize that because humanity is terrible at exercising dominion over all of God's works, aren't we? We are wretched at that. And when it says that God has given us dominion over all his works, we don't see that. We don't see humanity ruling. It looks to me like cancer rules, like tragedies rule, like wars rule, like tyrants rule. We see humanity fighting it out with creation and with each other instead of living in peace. Verses 5-8 through eight lay out this great cause for humanity, but it's clear when we look around, the cause is lost. God's splendor seems tarnished. His majesty in question. Does God's splendor empower the weak? Does God's splendor cause the weak to worship and wonder? Well, if you're paying attention, I skipped a verse. The very last part of verse 4, look with me now. What does it say there? David says, what is the Son of Man that you care for Him? And right there, instead of a cause lost, we see the lost found If you're familiar with the four gospel accounts of Jesus, especially the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' favorite term when he talked about himself was the Son of Man. And so we who read this psalm after Jesus, we have a hope fulfilled that the original readers had no idea they could only dream of. Because not only do we see a hint of Jesus here, and that yes, there is a Son of Man, maybe He fulfilled all these things, it becomes explicit in the rest of the New Testament, where in the book of Hebrews, where to encourage a church undergoing intense persecution and extreme difficulty, the inspired writer to the book of Hebrews grabs Psalm 8. 
He owns how hard life is. He outlines the same verses we just looked at, the, the, the cause lost. And then he says this. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says this. He says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, the author of Hebrews tells this suffering church, hey, the promises of Psalm 8 are not a pipe dream. We don't see those promises yet manifest, but we do see Jesus, the one man already reigning, the one man already fulfilling right now the promises of verse 5 and 6. Jesus became one of us in between people. He became a middle child of creation just like us. And then Jesus lived out this psalm for us. In verse 2, God's strength is shown in weakness. And that weakness will defeat his enemies. Jesus fully defeated the enemies of God through the weakness of the cross. Verse 5 tells us that humankind is crowned with glory and honor, and yet only Jesus is truly crowned with majesty and glory and splendor. Verse 5 again tells us that we have complete dominion and control, even going into verse 6, and at his resurrection, Jesus is crowned King of Kings. And you know it, right before the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? All authority has been given to me. Or as we could quote verse 6 here, right? All things are under His feet. Now, in in the pain of living in this world of a cause lost, where there's more cancer than control, where there's more death than dominion, look to Jesus and His victory and cry out from your heart, Oh Lord, my Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Because God's splendor empowers the weak causing them to worship and wonder. Now, if you've placed your faith and trust in this Jesus, then rejoice. See how big he is. See how amazing he is in his strength and his weakness and what he has done for you and how he lifts you up into that splendor and glory. And if if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I don't know if I've done that. Oh, don't you see that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel, what the Bible tells us is that the things that are true of Jesus become true of you. You're put in union with him, and so his splendor becomes your splendor. His rejoicing becomes your rejoicing. His victory over all the junk in life becomes your victory over all this junk. How oh, don't you want that? You can have that. And just... Forget everything you think you know about Christianity, everything you've called religion, and just place your simple trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And he'll make these things true for you. Now let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this inspired song that challenges us, Lord that shows us your beauty and your glory all at the same time, that shows us our great need. And so, Father, we pray that your majesty would overwhelm our hearts and that in the splendor of Jesus, we would find our refuge. 
And Lord, we ask that you would, for those of us who know you, take us deeper into the weakness of the cross that we might taste your strength in our lives. And Lord, we ask for those here today who don't know you that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him even now. Oh Lord, do your work of causing many to confess and believe the gospel. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.